It truly is a blessed morning in so many ways, and there are many families who are blessed today to have family members with us visiting, and that's true of my family, and we're so thankful, so honored for all of our visitors and guests today. You're so special to us in many ways, and our membership here, as well as all who are present, are so thrilled that it's the first day of the week, and we can, in fact, offer this worship to our God in heaven. As we begin this part of our service today, the lesson for the next few moments having to do with a topic that the world is finding at least the center of focus and attention today, the opening slide, the one that's before us next, in fact begins to appreciate this. Would you at least comment or at least think with me about the following? You know, each year, of course, the world celebrates Easter as that day to call to attention the resurrection of Jesus. And it's certainly true that every year that's going to fall sometime between mid-April and late, uh, I'm sorry, mid-March and the end of April. And so that again gives you about a five-week period on which Easter shall always be. Now it's also true that the way in which they figure out which Sunday is Easter depends on the phase of the moon, among other things. And so at this point, you might at least give some thought, how often does Easter occur on April 1st, the first day of April? And it turns out it's not all that often. Would you be interested to know that it's been 62 years since Easter fell on April 1st? The last time before today was 1956. Now, as you think back to things back on that occasion, you realize the next one after today will be 2029, and after that, 2040. I say all that to say this, our world, of course, casts a spotlight on Easter, and I'm thankful for the way Gary led us to ponder a few moments ago the fact that we have the blessed joy every first day of the week of thinking about not only the Lord's death, but His resurrection as well. Today, as you and I then think about a lesson that relates to some of that, I would invite you to note that slide with me. There is something truly special about the historical character of the Christian faith. Now, there are many religions known worldwide, and the fact of the matter is, in many instances, in fact, a large number of them, there is not a historical character, a historical feature to it. But that's not true of this one. For example, I've asked you to notice, Muhammad, which is that gentleman who, in a great measure, is the leader of the Muslim faith, well, you can go to his tomb and look at it. Or in fact, Joseph Smith, the Mormon founder, you can go to his tomb and look at it. You can't go to the tomb of Jesus and look at it. You and I serve a risen Savior. We serve the fact that that tomb, in fact, was found empty. Let's develop a lesson today using the New Testament as our rule of thumb to appreciate four consequences of that. But let's begin it with a historical reflection. That's what this opening, this next slide is all about. You and I remember so well that there was a man named Jesus. He taught in prolific effectiveness. He taught about parables. And he led individuals to appreciate that there is a God in heaven and that he himself was the Messiah. But as perfect as he was, the human family put him to death. Oh, it's true that he observed the Passover as recorded in Luke 22. And after, of course, doing so, he went out to the Mount of Olives, especially to a garden known as Gethsemane. He prayed with earnestness. 
And he prayed with a great character of feeling that night. But lo and behold, shortly thereafter, he was arrested. He appeared before a number of officials. And ultimately, in the wee hours of the morning, they condemned him to die. He was brought before Pilate. Pilate ultimately caved to the pressure of the Jews and even gave his consent to the same. You'll notice about the middle of that slide. This Jesus then, Pilate turned him over to those who would bring about his death by the means of crucifixion. But it is at that point, the bottom of that slide brings us to that fateful day. Thursday it was. Now I would ask you to notice our world often celebrates what it calls Good Friday, but Jesus didn't die on Friday. The world's just got all that wrong. He died on Thursday afternoon. In fact, they nailed him to a cross at nine that morning. He died at three in the afternoon that day. And then he rose three days later on Sunday morning. When those women came to the tomb, they found it empty. The stone had been rolled away and the Lord's body wasn't there. As you and I close that slide, let's turn to the next then and note four facts, F-A-C-T-S, Four of them that directly come from this appreciation using the Bible to help us understand and apply these things to ourselves. Fact number one is the very issue we've just raised, and I want you to be impressed. Jesus was raised. Now may I ask you to notice, to die is not really anything unusual. We're all going to die if the Lord delays His coming. Hebrews 9.27 says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. There have been many individuals throughout the ages who have died in very horrific and severe, anguishing ways. It isn't that unusual, in fact, to appreciate the character and nature of death. But would you note this? When you and I come to Jesus... It's true that He died, but it's also true He, in a unique fashion, was raised. The Lord, the God of heaven, raised Him. Could I point us to some verses like Mark 16, 6? You may recall that on that Thursday with the Passover, in fact, having been finished and the Sabbath soon coming on, the women and others were making rapid preparation. But with that said, they had to quickly get the Lord's body buried. They were going to come back after the Sabbath and complete the task. And when they came back, they even were pondering, how are we going to roll the stone away? And as they arrived at the place, they found the stone rolled away and the body wasn't there. Mark 16, 6 simply says, God raised him. By the great power of heaven itself, Jesus came forth from that grave. Following that, you may note this. And this fact must never go unappreciated by us. Isn't it still true that there have been instances throughout the ages when many individuals have claimed to be a Messiah? Many individuals have claimed some special commissioning from heaven. What made Jesus so different? You and I would die for Him. We believe that He really was the Son of God. How do you know? You know because of this fact. All those others who claimed to be Messiahs, they died, but they weren't resurrected. All those others, their claims were hollow. 
But with, when it comes to Jesus, we know He was the real deal because He was raised. You may notice this. In 1 Corinthians 15, I won't ask you to note the fullness of that reading, but let me just draw a few thoughts of comment. As Paul was discussing the resurrection of Christ, he says, beginning in verse number 5 of that chapter, after the Lord was raised, James saw Him. Peter saw Him. The twelve apostles saw Him. Above 500 brethren at once saw Him. Finally, Paul says, I saw Him. One of the strongest evidences and testimonies to a thing is the fact of eyewitnesses. And so it is that when it comes to the resurrection, here were hundreds of people who saw Jesus after He was raised. The Lord was raised. Now you and I realize today, many occasions are those in which we place the body of a loved one into the bosom of earth. Death has occurred. You and I don't go back to the cemetery hoping to see a resurrection. We know that's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. But yet here was an instance in which they placed the body of Jesus into the tomb, and sure enough, three days later, He was raised. And there were many witnesses who saw the risen Jesus. Now would you ponder with me for a moment the place of that later in preaching of the New Testament. When Paul and James and others then stood in pulpits and preached the resurrection of Jesus, there were actually people in the audience who says, Yes, I saw the risen Jesus. They knew that it was so. The fact of that leads us to close that opening observation, that first fact, with this statement. There's an extremely strong line of argument placed before you and me in 1 Corinthians 15. The fact that Jesus was raised leads us to note this. What would be true if it had not happened? If Jesus had not been raised, that would mean the apostles were liars because they preached He was raised. And therefore, if He really was it, Paul says we, including Himself, would have been a liar. But secondly, he goes on to say, not only would we be liars, your faith would be vain. Because you believe in the risen Jesus and all your hope of heaven rests on the fact that He was raised. Not only that, you and I would still be in our sins if He had not been raised. I suppose it's true that there are many who, upon considering that last fact, allow that to slip by our thinking. If Jesus had not been raised, it's one thing to believe in a crucified Jesus. And that true is powerful but it's even more powerful and complete to realize we also believe in a risen Jesus. Fact number one, Jesus was raised. Fact number two, let us notice what that consequence has for Jesus Himself. We mentioned, at least in passing, some element of this earlier. Let's complete that thought like this. Jesus died, and as horrific a death as it was as full of anguish and excruciating pain as it was, all of us realize the magnitude and degree of it. But there have been a lot of people throughout the ages who've died very anguishing, horrific deaths. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, in that honor roll of faith, it says there were some people who were cut in two. Imagine someone taking a saw and cutting you in two. 
and thereby leading to your death. Wouldn't that be painful? Many individuals have been stoned. Others have met their deaths in other ways. And yet the Lord was crucified. But wasn't it true? Two others were crucified that day too. Two thieves. But something was extraordinarily unique about those days following for Jesus. He was raised. The thieves were not. Jesus was raised. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, there's a great conclusion. There's a tremendous truth asserted. Paul, writing to the Roman congregation, said, We take Him, consider Him, trust in Him as a Son of God. Why? Because He was raised. That's how we know that He really was the Messiah. That's how we appreciate the fact He is and was a Son of God. He was raised. Now, go back in your mind to that scene in Luke 18. You remember even before He was crucified, Jesus in preaching to His apostles on one occasion, He was journeying toward Jerusalem. And on that occasion, verses 31 to 34 of Luke 18, He said, The Son of Man is going to Jerusalem. There He will be despitefully treated. He will be scourged. He will be killed. And He will rise again the third day. Jesus, you see, foretold about the events of His death, but He also foretold about the character of His resurrection. And it's those kinds of ideas that even led His enemies. You may remember, Jews said, seal the tomb, telling that to Pilate, because that imposter said He would rise again. Even they knew what Jesus had taught. The fact of the resurrection and the nature that He was the Son of God, brings us to those final two observations in that second point. He was raised to know no corruption. Let me say that again. He was raised, Acts 13, verses 34 and 35, to know no corruption. You see, when the Lord came out of that Hadean realm, rising from that old tomb that day, He fulfilled prophecy from Psalm 16 that He would know no corruption. That's going to have a great meaning for you and me in just a moment. For right now, that slide closes with one final observation. In the Lord's resurrection is a magnificent assurance of something. Every one of us ought to reflect on it. It's stated in verses like Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. Let me invite you to hear it and to think about the last statement in verse 31. It says... The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because He hath appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men in that He hath raised Him from the dead. We all heard that, didn't we? In other words, just as surely, and the testimony of God's guarantee that there will be a day of judgment is the fact that the Lord was raised. Notice it's not merely the fact that He died, but the fact that God raised Him is evidence and proof and guarantee that true enough, there will be a day of judgment for all of us. You see, the consequence of the Lord's resurrection is immense. The next point, point number three, follows directly from this one. Because that consequence for Jesus now asks, what about the consequence for you and for me? 
What does the Lord's resurrection mean to you and to me? Well, surely the New Testament has much to say about that. And in fact, let's start it like this. I've placed an exclamation mark at the end of that opening statement because we all should be appreciated. The fact that the Lord was raised highlights the fact that the death is not the end. It isn't. Death is not the end. We're each also aware that many of the existentialist philosophy throughout the decades have said, well, when you die, all that means is that's the end of everything. Your life is over. Your existence is over. You just fade away into nothingness. My friend, that isn't so. Oh, that is not so. The fact of the resurrection of Jesus is a hallmark truth relative to the matter that death isn't the end. And so it is. Let's develop that with this point. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 25, Paul, in fact, uses these very words. I'd like you to notice as I read from the first few of them, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse number 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's pause at that point. Paul begins in verse number 20 by saying, but now is Christ risen and become the first fruits of them that sleep. Now, that word sleep is a rather nice reference in the Bible to death. And you'll notice in Adam, all die, every one of us. We all understand that if the Lord delays His coming, death will be the lot all of us shall in fact experience. It's a pointer unto being once to die, you see. But you'll notice the verse doesn't end there. It says, Jesus has become the first fruits of them that sleep. That word first fruits, as you and I appreciate from Old Testament usage, is a reference to this. You and I remember how it worked. God commanded the ancient Israelites that when the harvest time would come, you make an initial gathering of the very first ripe grains. And you go take and offer that as an offering to God. It was the wave offering. The first fruit idea then was this. You offered that very initial element in that which was ripe with the guarantee and promise of God of the rest of the harvest that was going to follow it later. Paul's usage is this. Jesus rose first as God's ultimate and final guarantee that everybody is also going to be raised at the proper time and location. The Lord's resurrection, you see, is the guarantee that all of us will be too. As we noted earlier, the consequence of the Lord's resurrection is then rather significant and mighty. And that premise is used on many occasions throughout the remainder of the New Testament. May I call to your attention texts like 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 14. We each remember how sweet and how presentable that thought was when Paul said, just as surely as Christ was raised, you and I live in accordance to the fact of His resurrection. We live our life in open pursuit of the things of the truth of Jesus. It is for that reason that that 
last few thoughts then should be ours. The Lord was raised for our justification, an explicit statement of Romans 4.25. Why was the Lord raised? Because of your and my need for justification. Now that word justification means just as if I had never sinned. You and I could never be forgiven from sin if the Lord had not been raised. The shedding of His blood at the cross was a needful thing, but He was proven to be the Son of God when He was raised from the dead. Those thoughts are profound. They're meaningful. And they're so very helpful to you and I to live faithfully. Perhaps two final things. It is at this point that you and I can make this final connection. It has to do with baptism. Now notice, we have so far cast a spotlight on the Lord's death. And when He died on that Thursday, we understand well that His life was taken from Him as they nailed those nails into His hands and His feet. And six hours later, He died. But on that Sunday morning, He arose. Paul uses those same elements and applies them to you and me. And let's note how he does it. Romans 6, verses 1 and following. It is on that occasion and in that place that he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore, like as Jesus was raised by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in newness of life. And the connection is made complete, isn't it? Let's make sure we appreciate it. Jesus died. His body was buried. But God raised Him on that Sunday morning. He was raised to no more corruption, as we learned earlier today. Now let's apply it to you and me. You and I as a sinner, we come to the point of realizing that we need to obey the gospel. And as a sinner, of course, we believe in Jesus and repent of our sins. In that act of repentance, we die to the old way of sin. We've changed our mind with respect to it. We intend not to commit it anymore. We live a new direction in life. And now this observation is made plain. What do you do with things that are dead? You bury it. That's what we do to, to corpses. We, we bury them. Paul says, once we've turned from sin, we need to bury the old man of sin. And there's how it happens. That's the key element in regard to baptism. You bury the old man of sin, and in so doing then, what comes forth in the resurrection? The new man. The one who walks in newness of life. It is a sadness to think that so many in our world have misappreciated the significance of baptism. May we say it like this, if you had not been baptized, you haven't yet buried the old man of sin. He's still walking around. Therefore, you can't be saved. But when you undergo baptism, as the Scriptures teach it, that old man of sin has been buried and the one that's now before us is the one that has been resurrected to this spiritual life through Jesus. Jesus said it like this to Nicodemus in John 3, verses 3 to 5. Didn't He highlight the fact that you can never hope to see God 
unless you've been born again by water and the Spirit. The sweetness and the grandeur of that appreciation closes that slide by taking us to this application in 1 Thessalonians 4. In verses 13 to 18 of that chapter, Paul, in addressing the church in Thessalonica, pointed to Jesus' resurrection and said, Look at what this means for us as Christians. We ought not sorrow, he said, as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also shall God bring with Him. And then he went on to describe how that, at that second coming of Christ, we're going to hear the shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Death isn't the end. The dead in Christ will rise first. Oh, it's true. Everybody's going to rise that day. But faithful Christians will rise first. Oh, I want to be among that number, don't you? You can begin to see that the resurrection of Christ is a critical element in all the New Testament. But I suppose we would be remiss not to mention the fourth and final fact of the day. I've merely entitled it the other side. You see, when the Bible discusses resurrection, and so far you and I have noted that the Lord was raised to no more corruption. What about that grand occasion when you and I will be resurrected? Oh, it's true, we don't know when Jesus is coming back, so we don't know the day or the hour, but we do know this. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, when all that are in their grace shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. There's the word resurrection used twice in the same verse, John 5, 29. With its usage like that, may I ask, it testifies to the reality that there is another side. And by that phrase, I mean the other side of death. The other side of death. You and I, while we live in this flesh, we're accustomed to living here on the earth in the here and now. Oh, and we know what it's like to eat and to sleep and to wake up and to engage in work. And we understand what it's like to be with family and friends. We are accustomed to existence on this side. But may I suggest the fact that the Bible asserts that there's a resurrection means there's the other side. What's the other side of death going to be like? This day, our world turns its attention to the resurrection of Jesus, and without a doubt, it was the greatest single event in all of history. But may I point out, its implications, as we've seen today, mean a lot for me and for you. It means that there's a day of judgment, and it means I must be ready to experience the resurrection of life. And that's what this slide is all about. There's coming a moment of judgment. May I ask, am I ready? Are you ready? There's not going to be any second chances. There won't be any do-overs. You know, in golf, when you, in fact, make a shot and you don't particularly like it, sometimes they'll give you a mulligan. There won't be any mulligans on the Day of Judgment. That's going to be it. And the affirmation of the fact of that is the Lord's resurrection. Just as surely as God raised Him, there will be a resurrection of you and me. 
and there will be a judgment that follows it. It would be a tragedy then to imagine that day and to have the thought, well, I had the opportunity to be ready. I heard the gospel. I had opportunities to obey it, but yet I rejected it. I had individuals praying that I would. I had family members and others who insisted that I live wisely, and yet I turned a deaf ear to it. And now I have nobody to blame but me. I can't blame Jesus. He died for me. I can't blame God. He sent His Son that He might pay the price for my sins. I can't blame others who prayed earnestly for me because they did their part. I have nobody to blame for going to hell but me. The resurrection of Jesus is a significant statement that God's fidelity is to be noted. And today, let's close that slide like this. It's with that same verse we noted earlier in John chapter 5. It was on that occasion that some, res that some Pharisees were again challenging Jesus. And as a part of their challenge, they made note of manna and other things. And yet Jesus said, Marvel not, don't you be surprised. The hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice. Every cemetery is going to be emptied on some occasion. Every one of them, every person, whether living like a rascal or living like a godly, pious person, is going to come forth. And in so doing, they're going to stand before the God of heaven, and Jesus is going to be the judge. And when He opens the books, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, what will the verdict be concerning me? What will the verdict be concerning you? The same Jesus that humanity nailed to the cross is going to be standing there as my judge. And He'll even show us the nail prints if we want to see them. And I'll have nobody to blame for disobeying Him but me. How do you stand today? Are you living in light of the resurrection of Jesus? That text we noted earlier said it like this. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, The love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that He rose again, that we might live for Him. Are you living for Him? If you're not, the song of encouragement is about to be sung. We've looked at four facts of the resurrection today, and I might summarize them like this. Fact one, Jesus was raised. Fact two, that declared Him to be the Son of God. Fact three, that was the promise that all of us will be raised. And fact four, that means there's coming a day of judgment and the other side, there's a hell, a hell to be avoided and a heaven to be gained. Which road are you and I traveling? I pray that we're traveling the wise one. But if you're not, why not make a change today? There'd never be a better day than April the 1st, 2018. We'd be delighted to assist you in your response to the gospel. As an alien sinner, you need to believe in Jesus with all of your heart. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. We would be happy to assist you today. If you have begun the walk with Christ, and you were a faithful follower of His for a while, but you have taken a different path, you've chosen to walk a different road, the resurrection clearly has not become a very meaningful thing to you anymore. It really doesn't mean much. Don't you realize you're headed to judgment? Don't you want to be ready? 
As a wayward child of God, we'd be honored to pray on your behalf. As you repent and confess those errors, God has promised to forgive them. Won't you let us help you do that today? This song of encouragement is now yours as a time of opportunity. And if we could help you, why not come while together we stand and while we sing?